The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. Yes, great to be back again. I know you wanted to ask for some prayers tonight, Father, before we begin. Yes, of course. I, I ask you to continue praying for young uh, Jude, I mentioned his last name necessarily, but uh, young Jude, a little boy, uh, in fact, just an, uh, just a little toddler. But he has some very serious, serious health issues and uh, has been in and out of the hospital. Please pray for him. There are certain procedures that could be a big help for him in life, and uh, we're hoping that they'll prove beneficial and uh, take hold. And um, also, we need uh, prayers for, well, I will mention Joe Percher's name. Joe's a long-time traditional Catholic from uh, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, and now Immaculate Conception. Was at St. Anne's for a while, too, so he's kind of made the tour. And um, he's, uh, he's ailing, so please keep him in your prayers. Uh, combination of heart and cancer that he's fighting so valiantly, so please keep him in his, and his family in your prayers. And uh, also, Monica continues to improve after this uh, enormous, uh, uh, enormously catastrophic uh, car accident. Uh, some impaired driver ran head on into her, you know. And, uh, but she's home now and recovering well, and thanks you all for your prayers. I'm sure that's the key, not only to her survival, but to her recovery. And uh, also, there is another dear soul, a sacristan, one of our, actually our lead sacristan here at Immaculate Conception, who is quite ill. So we ask you to pray for her too. She's a valiant, uh, valiant woman, and uh, certainly is worthy of our prayers. All of these dear souls, even little Jude, I know, appreciates the prayers that are offered for him, and will reward you by praying for you and even offering up some of their crosses for you too, in, in uh, gratitude for your prayers for them. Okay. There are many more also. There are many others who need those prayers. We have an Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list here with requests for prayers that come in from all over the world. So please, uh, if you just pray for those on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, you're praying for everybody. Mm -hmm. God knows who they are, right. what they need. Thank you for that, Father. <clears throat> we, uh, we spent the last couple shows talking about the abortion issue, uh, going through some of the arguments. Um, in favor of abortion and hearing your response to them, and we uh, had received some feedback from that from that show, but we wanted to kind of put a cap on that discussion, probably maybe with, with one, last, um, one last topic that came in in regards to this question, and uh, we had a viewer essentially ask if you could talk about the process of being forgiven for the sin of abortion, because she says there are so many, um, whether it's the woman herself who had the abortion, or perhaps the husband, or boyfriend who encouraged this decision, um, sometimes even the, the uh, medical 
abortionists them, themselves sometimes mm -hmm. will c convert, have a, a change of heart and repent of their sin. But what does that process of, of repentance and forgiveness for the sin of abortion look like? Because she says there are so many who, um, you know, they try and make up for their, their sin by being involved in pro-life efforts. Mm -hmm. um, these are very good people. You know, a lot of them will even convert to the faith. Uh, she mentioned there are many, many Protestant um, persons who fit this bill. So is there anything that you can say, Father, she asked, that will bring comfort uh, to the majority of those who are repentant of this sin. Well, you mentioned uh, process. You mentioned that word a few times. And um, is is repentance really a process? Uh, in one sense, it can be considered a process, you know, because uh, obviously uh, there's a change of heart. And, uh, um, you know, you, you the, the writer is correct, obviously, and probably knows very well from experience uh, the truth of what he or she is saying, um, that there's an enormous amount of pressure on a person. Now, there, there, there are those individuals who just immediately think abortion, I've got to abort this baby. Uh, but there's many, there are many, many others who uh, don't have that initial reaction and uh, really are thinking very positively about keeping the baby. It's scary for them, and they need support. And uh, they find that the boyfriend is pushing them to abort the baby. Perhaps their parents even are pu pushing them to abort the baby. Their siblings, if they know, they too may be pushing them to abort the baby, their friends maybe. And so uh, a young lady, a young girl having a, a baby and being pushed to have an abortion can feel very, very isolated, very panicky, because she may feel that all of the support structure in her, her life is actually m militating for the abortion of this child. Uh, the very people upon whom she would depend, uh, whose support she needs to have the child, raise the child, and so on, they're all against the child's life. They're all uh, like Pulitzer and Vesa. They're all you know, thumbs down, put the child to death, uh, like in the Colosseum, right? Um, and uh, so she may feel as though there is no choice, no hope. Um, the only thing that could s sustain her at that time is her faith. And if she doesn't have a very strong faith in God and conviction about what is the right thing to do, um, all of the pressure... Uh, and militating for the, the death of the child can prevail. So there are, there are young ladies who go through that. And, um, you, you know, I guess they're probably being told, don't worry about it, because when the baby is gone, you'll feel a great relief. And, of course, maybe mom and dad who militated for the abortion feel relief that the baby is dead. Maybe the boyfriend feels relief that the baby is dead. Maybe the doctors feel relief uh, they get paid for this, right? Uh, counselors and all the rest, but the, the, the young lady does not feel that relief. She feels rather a remorse, a terrible, terrible remorse, a terrible absence that something tragic has taken place in her life that there's no way to uh, restore to her what has been lost. You know? And um, there are many, many young women like that right now. And uh, they... Um, they go through life not blaming the boyfriend and the parents and the friends and the siblings and the doctors. 
they go through life blaming themselves. And uh, there's really no, no uh, sense of relief for that because they, know, they believe this was their child whom they had put to death. And uh, they were the person most responsible, they feel, for protecting that child. And that's rightly so. But they were just weak or terrified. So, um, but for them to go to God to acknowledge this, humbly to acknowledge that this was done and that maybe they take responsibility for it. Um, uh, responsibility for an evil action can be uh, lessened by pressure, uh, metus, as they say in Latin, a kind of, almost a kind of terrifying fear or, or threat against them, that they feel threatened. That can actually mitigate one's guilt. And I, I wouldn't want a woman who has aborted a child, uh, even under, under pressure, to, to ever just kind of abdicate a certain sense of responsibility. But you also want them to realize that they were very vulnerable, and there were those who were taking care of that vulnerability, taking advantage of that vulnerability. So does that relieve them of a sense of responsibility? No. Would it, uh, and could it make them less responsible for the evil that was done? In the eyes of God, yes. But they go to God and they, they humbly acknowledge that they ultimately were the ones who decided the death of the child. But they go to God with confidence in God's love for them to forgive them. To forgive them. And, um, and God does forgive them. He does forgive them. I mean, after all, for a woman to do that, for a, for a young woman who aborted a baby, to then acknowledge the fact of what has been done, take responsibility for what she's done, go to God uh, with a repentant heart and seek forgiveness, all of that requires grace from God. So of course God knows what um, the person has done, and he knows what remorse is in their heart. He knows that because it's his grace that is inspiring them to repent. It is his grace that is calling them. It's, it's as our Lord is calling them to him. It's, it's nothing less, really, than our Lord saying, come to me. As our Lord said, come to me, all ye that labor and are burdened, and I will refresh you. Come to me, you who are laden with your, the guilt of your sin, and I will relieve you of that. I will deliver you from that. I will redeem you from that. Come to me. Come to me. When our, our Lord is moving a soul to do that, uh, that soul begins to feel that, that, need, that, that, that being drawn, being drawn to go to God. Because our Lord is calling them to come to Him. That's why. And uh, they may not realize that that's what it is, but that's exactly what it is. That's the grace of God calling out to them Come to me. Come to me. I want you to come to me because I want to forgive you. I want you to be forgiven. Um, that's what our Lord does for the cross. He calls us to come to him there because he wants so much to forgive. And all we have to do is hearken to his voice and come to him with repentance and with confidence. With confidence. And we have every reason to have confidence. A woman in that situation, repenting of an abortion, 
has every reason to have confidence in the mercy of God because when she hears that voice in her mind or in her soul calling her to our Lord, it's his voice. And it's because he wants to forgive her. All he needs her to do is to turn to him with faith and hope and charity and confidence in his love for her. That's all he needs. And um, she shouldn't resist that. She should find it to be, um, to be very reassuring that she should run to him. Um, you know, you think of Mary Magdalene wanting to go to our Lord. I'm, I'm sure Mary Magdalene was very ashamed of her sins, and you can be sure the devil was trying to convince her, don't even think about going to him. He'll never forgive you. He knows who you are. He knows what you are, you know, and he'll never forgive you. He despises you. He detests you, you know. You're already lost. You're already in my power. I mean, all this stuff the devil comes up with, to convince a soul, don't answer that call. God is calling you. Don't answer the call. Um, but, you know, our Lord is very persistent. And, and uh, so, you know, there are many, as you say, many young ladies who are answering that call to our Lord to go to him and seek that forgiveness. The, prob the problem arises, though, that uh, <clears throat> they seek forgiveness and they receive forgiveness. Now, you know, in traditional times... And I think even the, even the modern code of canon law of the modernist church of Vatican II still levels an excommunication against those who have a direct hand in, in abortion, um, committing an abortion. And that would apply to the, the woman who, whose baby was aborted, too. But um, nowadays, I don't know if they enforce that. I, I don't know if you went to a confessor in the Novus Ordo and confessed having an abortion. I don't know what they would do. Um, but um, the fact is, I mean, there, there, were, there were two penalties. Of course, there's the penalty of the mortal sin and the penalty of the censure, which is excommunication, um, which is due because of the scandal it's caused. I mean, some, some sins are, are sins, but they're not necessarily called crimes. But sins that actually generate an enormous amount of scandal uh, that are so serious that they can also be met with censures, which is a public thing, which has to be lifted by the authority of the church, too. But um, the most important thing for a woman who's uh, had an abortion and now feels repentant and feels... Uh, feels that repentance because our Lord is giving her the grace to feel it. She has to accept the next grace, and that is the grace of humility to be able to go to, to admit it to herself, herself to go to our Lord and seek his forgiveness. And I would say, please go to a traditional Catholic priest who can give you the traditional sacrament of penance and give you absolution. And uh, then you know that God indeed has forgiven you. When, that, when the word of absolution is pronounced, then you know that God has forgiven you. The hardest part is forgiving yourself, though. Something that our writer, I think, said doesn't go away, right? It stays. It's there. It's always there. And uh, is that a bad thing? Well, it's not a bad thing if it spurs you to love our Lord more. The memory of her sins spurred Mary Magdalene to love our Lord even more the fact that she was forgiven so much. And um, it was a kind of a, 
uh, like a circle here that she loved much because she was forgiven much and she was forgiven much because she loved much, you know. It, but it's just the sort of thing that grace builds on itself, you know. And uh, if so, if it, if it moves someone who is uh, guilty of aborting a child to want then to dedicate his or her life to saving the lives of children, then this is just doing exactly what God wants of them. But because God will not permit an evil without employing his divine power to bring a greater good, uh, that there be some souls lost so that more, more souls ultimately will be saved. And there, the suffering is a matter of, uh, of cathartic uh, uh, repentance for those you know, who are going to be saved in heaven. So, um, in any case, um, if... On the other hand, the memory of the loss of a child or the death of a child uh, rather leads them to despair and give up hope, then that is something very evil and that is something very diabolical. And what they're doing is they're turning the memory of the loss of a child, the decision to abort the child, the guilt that that decision brings to them, they're actually turning that into a thousand temptations, a million temptations, a temptation that faces them repeatedly every single day to despair. That is wrong. That is, that is very wrong. And they must absolutely reject that because that is uh, basically a denial of God's mercy. That's what despair is. You know? That's what the devil tries to do. No matter how many times he gets us to sin, ultimately what he wants us to do is totally give up on God's mercy. That's one of the sins that is against the Holy Ghost for which there is no repentance. You know? So uh, if the person genuinely repented, uh, it's because God gave them the grace to, to, do, to do so. Uh, when God gives them absolution in the sacrament of penance, he's, he means it. And um, he remembers no longer their guilt. Um, all of the, the, certainly the eternal punishment due to their sins is taken away. And the merits of all that they do or have done are restored to them. And uh, now they can learn a greater humility and greater charity and devote themselves to God's service in a way that perhaps would never have occurred to them before. So, um, yes, that, that particular act is tragic. And yet, at the same time, uh, by the grace of God, an enormous amount can be done. By the way, uh, a good can be done. By the way, it's important also for a mother who has aborted her baby, though she feels terrible about doing that, having done that. And now she's in a position to reach out to other young ladies and see to it that they are never left abandoned in this hopeless situation that she found herself in, if that's in fact what happened to her. That she can dedicate her life to making sure no other woman is left in that circumstance that she feels compelled to comport a baby. But she also has re she always has the memory, well, what about this child? What about this child? This child was a unique individual uh, created by God in his own image. And, uh, and that child is lost now, you know? Um, but that child, but again, the, the woman must take comfort from the fact that God is still God, and he still has 
the last word in these things. The Catholic Church traditionally teaches there is a, a limbo of the infants, which is a place of natural happiness, where this child goes. And it did not die in the grace of God, which, can, which comes for, to a child in baptism. And uh, the child was not baptized. And uh, this is a great heavy cross for her too. You know. She's thinking, not only did I deprive my child of this life, but I deprived my child of everlasting life. She's got to understand, though, that that child in limbo is in a place of natural happiness. That that child is not suffering. Uh, that the child, if, if we're faced with the choice of having being there now or not being at all, never having been conceived in the first place, the child would definitely choose to be in limbo right now. The child, would, the child would definitely say, if you're giving me a choice, if I had the choice between existing as I am now in my current state and not existing at all, never having been, I would, without hesitation, choose where I am right now. Uh, because I am in a place of happiness. I'm in a place of natural happiness. And uh, by, the, by virtue of the intellect and will, which is the image of God in man, or the, the faculties that enable that child, even now, uh, let's say, having been freed of, of the shackles of, of the flesh, that, uh, that child's soul knows and loves and enjoys what is beautiful on a natural level. And we know from this life that that's a wonderful thing. Even to have this life is wonderful, right? They say that life is beautiful. Um, that's the, the motto, right, that's <laughs> passed around. Well, actually, in, in limbo, it, it is. Um, uh, in the sense that they have natural beauty to enjoy. And so that child um, is still very thankful for having been conceived and having been brought into the world. And uh, although it's been denied the supernatural uh, grace of everlasting life, um, the child is thankful for existing. And um, I, I've, heard, I've, I've heard of women who say, look, I, I believe that the child I'm, bear I'm bearing is a human being. I believe that. But I have to abort this baby because if I let this baby live, this baby will grow up to hate me. I, women have actually said that to abortion counselors, anti-abortion counselors. They fear that the child will resent them and carry a grudge against them forever. And, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the case. Uh, uh, rather, we know that even the case of children who are aborted um, are not moved by that animosity. But children who live have this bond that they want to know, you know, their mothers and fathers, and it's so important to them, and they just feel this, uh, uh, this connection with them. We've seen this happen over and over again. So, you know, the point is, if a woman has a child in her womb, and she's already a mother, that she must not be afraid to let that to allow that child to live, 
And all too often, sad to say, it is a matter of the woman uh, being afraid to allow that child to live because she's being terrified into aborting the child. So um, anyway, Tom, that's right. You talk about the process, as I say, the process, one of seeking forgiveness from God and uh, accepting, accepting the forgiveness from God. Mm -hmm. That's a very important part of it, too. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. That's, that's very, very helpful, very uh, practical. And, of course, we will always continue to pray for those who happen to find themselves in that situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but, Father, we wanted to touch on an article that uh, came our way via LifeSite News uh, uh, about Francis. Mm -hmm. talking about the uh, non-acceptance of Vatican II, and he says that this is the problem in the church today. Um, and just reading a, a couple quotes from this article, um, Francis says, the current problem in the church is precisely the non-acceptance of, he calls it the council. Um, the uh, life site puts in there the, uh, the Second Vatican Council to clarify. Uh, but Francis talks about this uh, restorationism idea. He says that uh, these people have come to, quote, gag the council, uh, the Second Vatican Council. He criticizes the old-fashioned methods uh, of these people. He says that uh, the council that most pastors remember best is the Council of Trent, and he complains about this, um, saying that they instead should remember... Council of Trent taking place in the 1500s, but most people remember that mess. Yes, yes. Well, that, that, yes. that's kind of an yeah. admission, I would say. Right? Yeah, yeah. But he, he uh, I thought it was interesting, Father, he singles out... They remember it as Catholic, let's put it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he, he singles out the United States in particular and says that there's so many uh, yeah. restorers in the United States. He says the number there is significant and, again, complains about this. And... Um, he, uh, he, he says so much in this, in this article, Father, but um, I know you've, you've read through some of it, but I uh, just thought it was, it was interesting um, that, uh, I mean, he pretty much says it plainly. We would agree with him that this is the issue facing the church today, Vatican II or not. And mm -hmm. um, he admits this is, this is the this issue. This is the issue, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and he says the non-acceptance of Vatican II, this is, this is the issue that is somehow afflicting the church. Above right? everything else. Wow. Everything else. This is it. It's all about Vatican II, right? Yes. It's the conflict between Vatican II and the traditional faith. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, you know, I don't always agree with him, <clears throat> but I would have to say I agree that that is, that is the great conflict, right? Yes. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? Those who say, forget the old normal, there's no going back, right? You've got to get used to the new normal because there's no going back to the, the old normal. That's gone forever, right? Francis basically has the same message. And even, even uh, you know, Francis saying um, that the, the problem is the non-acceptance of Vatican II. This is the problem. But what if I were to change uh, some of the terms and say, the problem is those anti-vaxxers and the non-acceptance of vaccine. That's the problem. Uh, and we have to overcome that. We have to break that down and get people to get vaccinated by modern, oh, I'm sorry, by, uh, by the vaccine. We have to get them to convince to take the vaccine, right? Just as we have to convince them to get their, their brains injected with modernism uh, of Vatican II so that we can finally move on. Um, it's the people who are resisting the Great Reset. It's the people who are resisting Build Back Better. Uh, they're resisting... Um, Communism, Marxism, uh, socialism, these are the evil people we have to stop. 
Francis actually reminds me of something, and that is he reminds me of Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab has set himself up as like the pontiff, the pontiff of the, the New World Order. Right? And uh, Francis is the pontiff of modernism, the new religious world order, as it were. And they have the same message. They just, you know, use basically uh, different terminology for it, but it comes down to the same thing. I do have this article here, Tom, and, uh, you know, as, uh, this article comes to us from the um, LifeSite News, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, in fact, I was kind of surprised the article wasn't more prominent, but maybe they decided to bury it because they think it's nonsense, which it is. But the problem is, that there are hundreds of millions of people who considered Francis to be the supreme pontiff and the vicar of Christ on earth of the, of the true Roman Catholic Church, where he's actually the supreme pontiff of the new order. Okay. But this is what the article in LifeSite News says. It's headlined, Pope Francis claims non-acceptance of Vatican II is the church's current problem. And uh, the subheadline says the Argentine pontiff decried those in the church he called restorers for their desire to remember to remember the Council of Trent, for their desire to remember the Council of Trent. Uh, I mean, if that's accurate, he wants the Council of Trent forgotten. Remember when the Novus Ordo first came out and uh, Cardinal Ottaviani wrote his intervention? Remember that? And this is back in 1969, the intervention. He was talking about the New Order Mass. And he said there that the New Order of Mass has no intention of standing for the faith as taught by the Council of Trent, to which the Catholic conscience is bound forever. It was 1969. And here Francis, after all this time, is bringing up again what he would think, the ghost of the specter of, of, of Trent and saying, we have to leave that behind. Exactly what Cardinal Ottaviani was warning against the new rite of mass that Paul VI produced, that this is exactly true. So this is a, a, actually a damning admission by Francis, almost as though he's getting desperate, you know? And um, <clears throat> they're having these show trials for the insurrection going on in Washington, D.C., uh, because, you know, they have to break down all the resistance to the democratic program. And uh, Francis, on his part now, in the Vatican, is cranking up the heat on the traditional restorers, you know. Um, there's no, this is no accident. Um, you know, there's, there are things in the article that are actually worth reading, because some of them actually quote Francis. Um, this is dateline, this is headlined by Vatican City, by the way. LifeSite News, Pope Francis has attacked traditionalists in the church, saying that the current problem in the church is precisely the non-acceptance of the Second Vatican Council. In a wide-ranging interview with Jesuit magazines held in May 19th, but published June 14th, Pope Francis spoke on the role of the Jesuit order in the church today and the Russia-Ukraine war but chiefly attacked Restorationism, which he said had come to gag the Council. Well, actually, the Council has been gagging ever since 1962, 63, 64, and 65, right? 
it's been gagging and uh, trying to strangle the true church. Uh, he says, referring to the Second Vatican Council as the point from which to base evangelization efforts, Francis said that it is very difficult to see spiritual renewal using old-fashioned criteria. Well, those old-fashioned criteria produced magnificent missionary efforts, including the Jesuits prominently. And uh, not the fake Jesuits that he's addressing here, not the fake Jesuit that he is, but the real Jesuits who were genuine missionaries of a real traditional Catholic Church and her teaching, according to old-fashioned criteria, what he says now we have to reject. So the very methods of St. Ignatius Loyola, in the very process of rejecting them, he's saying that this is the new mission of the Jesuits, the new Jesuits, right? Who are the enemies of the old Jesuits, the enemies of St. Uh, St. Ignatius Loyola and St. Francis Xavier. He says, Restoration has come to gag the council. Before addressing, he said this before addressing the American church in particular. The number of groups of restorers, for example, in the United States, there are many, is significant. Words of Francis, right? Thank you, Francis, yeah, for the compliment. <laughs> He said, the article goes on to say, Pope Francis criticized the ideas, behaviors, which came from the groups of restorers, advising the assembled Jesuits that the council must be more heavily promoted in order to be accepted. After all this time, the council must be more heavily promoted? How can it be more heavily promoted than what they went through, than what they've done there? Bludgeoning people to accept it having an entire generation or two grow up in the, with the council and the aftermath of the council, and they still can't sell it. That tells you something. By the way, when he uses the word restorers, I hear Hillary Clinton condemning the deplorables. It's almost like these are the, the, the deplorables in the church, in Francis's mind. And this is a quote from him. There are I ideas, behaviors that arise from a restorationism that basically did not accept the council. The problem is precisely this. In some contexts, the council has not yet been accepted. It is also true that it takes a century for a council to take root. We still have 40 years to make it take root then. Well, that's interesting. Remember when the devil uh, uh, was heard by Pope Leo XIII and... Uh, was told, I give you 100 years. He said, how much time do you need? 100 years, he said. I give you your 100 years, right? Is that when the 100 years began? To see if he could get the council to take root? Is that the 100 years Francis is talking about? This is the last great push to make sure everybody accepts the council? I don't know. Curious, though. At the close of his meeting, Francis uh, had this meeting with the Jesuit magazine editors, in May, it was published in June 14th, Pope Francis repeated his open attack on traditionalists, saying, sorry if I went on too long. He's obsessing about this, actually. But I wanted to underline the post-council and Arupe issues because the current problem of the church is precisely the non-acceptance of the council. He keeps going back to that, as though, as I say, he's obsessed with it. By the way, he had just talked about... Uh, the superior general of the Jesuits, Pedro Arupe. He was superior general from 1965 at the end of the council until 1983. 
And the man produced the revolutionary within the Jesuit order. He produced the modernist Jesuit order, really. He produced, I mean, it was his thinking that produced Francis, essentially, right? And he tells this man, he says, today for us, that general is a saint, he says. But he had to endure many attacks. But we see that he was the man who really revolutionized the Jesuits. And Francis holds him up as kind of a patron saint now. The Pope's newly released interview comes days after he criticized the Sicilian bishops for their use of grandma's lace in the liturgy. He criticized them for using lace in the liturgy. Now, you know I am not very fond of lace. I'm even considered the destroyer of lace because when I have lace on an alb, I generally, on the way up the steps to the altar, uh, tend to do some damage to it, okay? I'm not against it in principle, but... Uh, but here Francis is mocking the use of lace as though it's somehow paying tribute to grandma rather than paying tribute to Holy Mother Church. Whoever thought of that? But Francis. It wouldn't occur to anybody but Francis that by wearing the lace on my, on my surplus or my alb, I'm paying tribute to grandma because I'm wearing grandma's lace. This is absurd. But this is the way the man thinks. It's very childish. Um, there was even a, a deacon in the United yeah, in. Uh, Great Britain, who, who criticized Francis's criticism and uh, says that actually the traditional Catholics are just trying to uphold the traditional teaching and tr traditional practice of the church. Exactly the opposite of what, Saint, what, what Pope Francis, so-called, is doing. He says Francis really needs to um, uh, look in the mirror, he says, quote-unquote, look in the mirror and check himself and find what he is guilty of. And... Um, a liturgical scholar they quote in the article in LifeSite News, a man named Matthew Hazel, says, uh, expressed concerns over Francis's interview, writing, quote, Vatican II will be made to take root no matter how much pastoral damage it causes. Well, I think these gentlemen who realize what's going on here need to actually take a stand firmly for the traditional faith exclusively and stop trying to reconcile the, uh, the Novus Ordo, the new order of Vatican II, with the traditional Catholic faith and realize that these are intrinsically opposed to each other. The one is modernism, the complexus of all heresies, the synthesis of all heresies, and the other is the traditional Catholic faith. And there can be no peace between them. One is designed to destroy the other. And yet they remain within carrying on, unfortunately, trying to uh, pretend that you can practice the traditional Catholic faith honestly and in its integrity within the context of the Novus Ordo, and you can't. <clears throat> you have to just practice the faith. Um, in any case, uh, the article goes on to talk about the tradition, the German synodal way, which is certainly schismatic. Uh, even against the Novus Ordo, it's schismatic. And uh, Francis's comment there was, again, very telling. Uh, he was talking about this German synodal way, which wants to take its own route. I mean, Francis was the one who started this whole talk about the synodal path. And the Germans are just taking it to its logical conclusion. But Francis says, he, he speaks against the Germans taking it to this other path. He says, why? Because it's wrong? Because he condemns it? No. His answer, in Germany, there was a very good evangelical church already. We don't need two of them. 
as though to say, well, the German Synodal Way is going to become another evangelical church. He said, well, why do we need two? We have a we have perfectly good evangelical church already, Protestant church already. So, and he, of course, is perfectly at peace with that. He embraces that. Uh, he can celebrate with these people. And so, again, I mean, everything he says is so revealing about his faithlessness. The man does not have faith, faith at all, any, any faith. Um, I found very interesting, though, I'll close, stop talking about that in this case. I found it very interesting when uh, Francis himself alludes to two dioceses. He talks about Cologne, and he talks about a controversy uh, festering in the Diocese of Cologne over the way that cardinal archbishops uh, handling of the abuse, sex abuse reports, was, was taken care of. Um, but then he shifts gears and goes to the Diocese of Arecibo. And he says, in Arecibo, in Puerto Rico, whose popular conservative bishop, he, Francis, recently fired because likely because of his opposition to the COVID-19 injection mandate. So it is said here that the Bishop of Arecibo, whom Francis just fired, was a popular conservative bishop within the Novus Ordo. Francis fired him for that. Arecibo was the diocese that Bishop Mendez established. When he was first made a bishop in 1962, he was given, uh, actually 1960, 1960, he was given the job to found a new diocese in the middle of Puerto Rico, and he did. And that was the diocese he established. He had no diocese seminary. He sent seminarians to seminarians in the, in the States, uh, the continental United States, and then pulled them out because he saw how they were being corrupted by modernism. And he took them back to Arecibo and undertook to teach them himself. And I, I find it very interesting that in that, uh, by the way, when Bishop Mendez died, his body was taken basically by the family and buried in the cathedral in Arecibo. And I understand that his body is buried now in a corner of the cathedral of Arecibo and is completely neglected. People have been there to visit the grave of Bishop Mendez, who consecrated Bishop Kelly and ordained Father Greenwell and Father Barber. Uh, that this grave is neglected and is kind of just overgrown, almost in a statement of rejection. And it's interesting that now this conservative Novus Ordo Bishop has had un undergone the death penalty, right, Ex executed by Francis, as it were, ecclesiastically, because he's too conservative. And... Uh, I find that actually significant that in this statement, blasting traditionalists as restorationists, Francis specifically mentions the diocese of Arecibo, founded by our, our own Bishop Mendez, dear dear friend of my family, uh, my parents in particular, and a great benefactor. 
so anyway, I, I thought that was kind of curious from my own point of view. So um, there's more that could be said about this. I do encourage you to go to the uh, the uh, Life Site News um, website and look and see this article, read it, and you'll find it very revealing that Francis, they say, is planning to retire, although uh, Maradiaga, what's his name, the cardinal, one of his advisors says that's not true, he's not planning that at all, but you can't believe a word that they say. That's the problem. Um, but it, it was just brought to my attention recently that uh, uh, Francis has not only made 21 new cardinals for the modernist church of Vatican II, all 21 of them being radical and LGBTQ sympathizers, all 21 of them. But that brings the total of Francis's cardinal electors, that is, cardinals who can actually uh, vote for a new supreme pontiff of the new order, to 63%. 63% of the modernist cardinals of the new order church were named by Francis. 29% were named by Benedict. And 8% of the remaining elector, the, that is, cardinals who can actually vote, were put in place by John Paul II. Now you might say 63%, that's a, that's a pretty serious majority, just named by Francis, as he's trying to stack the College of Cardinals of the new church in order to basically uh, predetermine who his successors will be as the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo, of the New Order. And one might say, Oh, gee, if only we had more of those established by Benedict and more of those put in place by John Paul II. But wait a minute. It was the ones who were put in place by Benedict and the ones who were put in place by John Paul who elected Francis in the first place. They're the ones who gave us Francis. The 63% appointed by Francis all were appointed because the others appointed by Benedict and John Paul elected Francis in the first place and put him in the position to name that 63%. So let's not have any of this, uh, if, only, if only Benedict, if only John Paul II, they're the ones who gave you Francis in the first place. So let's face reality here, not uh, try to sugarcoat it at all. So in any case, um, that's basically what we're dealing with on that front right now. Uh, I, I would that the... Uh, there, there, are, there are a lot of New Order Catholics. They're New Order Catholics because that's the religion they're practicing. They're going to the New Order liturgy, and they're going along with all of these New Order prescriptions and looking to Novus Ordo bishops, modernist bishops, to tell them what they should do to be Catholic. And yet so many, many of them still have the true faith. We know that they have. Many of them have the true faith. Uh, many of them kind of wash up on our shores of the traditional Catholic church, churches and chapels, and they find they find their solid land, and they find the faith that they believe in. They they know that what they believe ha is at variance with what's actually being preached to them from the pulpit, what's being preached to them from the Vatican, that that it offends what they believe because they still do believe the true faith.
And they find their way back more and more and more and more to the true Mass, the true sacraments, the true faith, practice the true faith. That's how we know so many of these good people actually do still have the true, true faith after years and years and years of living basically in the gulag of the Novus Ordo. Um, even young people, somehow they imbibe, that they, they just know instinctively what the true faith is. It's a grace from God. That, uh, and they, they, they come and they embrace the traditional faith. Uh, faith they were perhaps never fully trained in. Maybe they, maybe they had conservative parents, but not always. Maybe they had conservative parents who were Novus Ordo, but it still taught them the traditional catechism. But not always. There are, still, there are young people who grew up with very radical Novus Ordo, liberal, modernist parents who still find their way to the traditional faith. It's, it's, it's the grace of God. It has to be a miracle of grace. But they do find their way there. And so, uh, you know, God bless them and guide them and bring them back to the practice, bring them to the practice of the true faith in its integrity. The, the problem is some of them will find a halfway house, which is quasi-traditional, traditional enough, novus ordo enough to make them feel comfortable, that they have a foot in both camps. But they're, they're still going to, they're going to experience the contradiction. The internal, inevitable contradiction between Catholicism and modernism. They're going to have to get off that non-existence fence. It exists only in their own minds. And I pray that they, they get off, as it were, on the, on, the, on the side of traditional Catholicism and practice the faith in its integrity. Mm -hmm. um, so, in any case, we, we pray for that. Yes. Father, just, just real quickly, uh, where do you see things going in the Novus Ordo Church? You mentioned the possibility of uh, Francis retiring or resigning. Um, even, if he, even if he doesn't, he is a, uh, he's an elderly man. We, we certainly don't expect him to uh, be, be Pope for, for too much longer in, into the future, relatively speaking. Um, you mentioned this, you know, 63% of the cardinal electors, these are men who think like Francis. Um, one can only imagine the... Some of them are actually, uh, are actually to the left of Francis. Yes, one can only imagine the type of person that they would elect. Where do you see things going after the Francis papacy of the Novus Ordo? Actually, after Francis uh, passes away or resigns, I, uh, they, they're going to meet and uh, have a conclave, and it's going to be a circus. And uh, they're going to, I, I believe it's all stacked, uh, barring some divine intervention. It's stacked to produce a someone who really is the supreme pontiff of the new order, a religion of the new world order, uh, someone who is so just radical he, that he'll just basically drop all pretense of um, even reaching out to the restorers, and he will just uh, completely cut them off, condemn them, and um, actually paint them as though they were trying to lead an insurrection against the authority of the church. And, uh, and who knows, you know, what kind of violence as he points to them and says, they're the ones, they're the problem, get them, you know, silence them. Um, they're the ones, the rejectors of Vatican II. Just as uh, the New World Order itself, not the, you know, we have the, the new religious world order is, was a necessary prelude to the new 
secular world order that we witness now because it was the faith and the moral principles of the church traditionally that held all that back. And as that began to fail, as it were, uh, and crumble because of the perfidy of the hierarchy uh, and the weakness of men, uh, with uh, you know abortion and the acceptance of these evil things, and uh, the church was compromised by the modernists. So um, that's that's how civil society began this path to where it is right now. The church itself had to be had to be crippled though, had to be silenced squelched, buried, whatever. Uh, Francis is basically uh, uh, basically finishing burying the grave right now. I think his, I think his successor is going to uh, basically try to put the church in that grave and cover and bury it alive. You know, of course, they tried to bury Christ, didn't they? And uh, that didn't work out as they planned. Uh, the church, like our Lord himself, of course, has the power to rise from the dead. We know that. Even the church's enemies have said that and fear that. Satan certainly knows that's true. Doesn't stop him from trying, though. It's all he's got, you know. So he's going to kind of carry, uh, carry live out that, that sordid destiny he has of failure, which he knows, he knows how it ends in his def- ultimate defeat, but he can't help himself, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, as I say, the, the, uh, modus operandi, the, the manner of proceeding or operating within the church and without the church and secular society parallel each other, the modernists and the leftists, the modernists are the leftists within the church, right? That's all. They have that religious veneer about them and they use religious language to carry out the program of the modernists. To bury the church, <clears throat> just as the leftists have the the Stalinist and Leninist program to bury society, you know, Christian society. Uh, as the threat was, we will bury you. Right. In fact, they're going to bury us under our own filth because of the immorality, um, because of the rejection of faith, hope, love, or God for each other in God. Uh, they're going to bury us all under under all of the all of the the filth that we produce, morally speaking, in this country. That's what they're trying to do. We know that the uh, the show trials are going on even now in Washington D.C. The Stalinist show trials to try to convince uh, the American people that there was it was an insurrection. I thought it was very interesting uh, that people. We're curious about this, the show trials of the Democrats from Washington, in which they're trying to make the case that this was an actual bona fide insurrection. They have nothing to work with except for what they can fabricate. They have no evidence that is honest evidence. They won't even show the tapes, the recordings, hundreds and hundreds of hours of of video recordings of what actually happened. They will not allow those to be shown. Interesting, right? That's an admission. Uh, they've got nothing except what they can fabricate. And again, a lie told often enough and asserted with such uh, insistence enough times is going to be accepted as the truth. 
That's what we were told by the communists. That's what we see witnessing in Washington, and that we see happening in Washington, D.C., with these, these trials, these insurrectionist trials of January 6th. Right? Uh, the Democrats are trying to make that come true now, but there are too many American people who are onto them and who know that they cannot be trusted. So it's not working. And so they're very desperate. I just read uh, today that they've decided to call a kind of a, a pause to this whole effort so they can go back and confer because they realize it's not working. And they've got to determine what they need to do now. They've got to change, somehow change this, the story, change the line, change the pitch, change something because they realize that they're not persuading the country that there was actually an, a, a, a coup, like a, some kind of a political coup involved. And there was no effort to overthrow the government of the United States of America. Um, not on our part. The question on their part, that remains an open question, right? But um, I found it interesting here that uh, a headline appeared on ZeroHedge.com. Capitol Police Chief debunks J6th, January 6th, committee conspiracy theory. And uh, one of the lies that they were trying so hard to push was that there was a Republican, a Republican uh, congressman named Loudermilk, GOP lawmaker, Representative Barry Loudermilk, Republican from Georgia, who was actually taking a tour group through the Capitol on January 5th to uh, actually scout out, to scout the Capitol ahead of time for the insurrection. He was actually performing reconna reconnaissance. Now this was actually stated here by Democrats. Democrats who are leading these January 6th committees. The January 6th committee actually said this. It says uh, in the article um, here in uh, Zero Hedge, uh, the J6 committee, Democrat Bernie Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, and the rhino Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, made allegations against Loudermilk in a letter to the media. So they sent a letter to the, the media, the national media, last month, demanding to know why Loudermilk explain why there's a little bit of uh, unfortunate uh, wording here they got but they were they wanted him, they were demanding that Loudermilk explain why he was giving a tour of the capital the day before the riots implying that he may have been doing reconnaissance for the next day's riots now again you know the democrats show themselves as being very very dim intellectually dim, because you'd think, well, wait a minute, if Loudermilk knew that the next day they were going to carry off an insurrection and there were going to be riots, then he certainly would not have been leading a tour through it the day before and setting himself up for accusations like that, right? So the fact that he's leading a tour of tourists through the capital the day before would be rather an indication that he didn't know what was coming. But no, they have to twist it according to their own twisted minds into proving or suggesting his guilt to the media. Of course. And the media jumps right on it. 
because they're they're the lap dog or the attack dogs of the Democrats. Um, this is what the letter said. Based on our review of evidence in the select committee, committee's possession, we believe you have information regarding a tour you led through parts of the Capitol complex on January 5th, 2021, Cheney and Thompson wrote. We believe you have information regarding a tour you led through parts of the Capitol. He led the tour. Of course, he has information. What does this say? What does this mean? It's just the most blatant innuendo and just slander, right? The, the, the implications of these people are so evil, right? Uh, Cheney and Thompson wrote this. The foregoing information raises questions to which the select committee must seek answers. So we believe you have information. The next sentence says, the foregoing information raises questions. <laughs> the question which we think you have, you must have raises questions now, to which the select committee must seek answers. Public reporting and witness accounts indicate some individuals and groups engaged in efforts to gather information about the layout of the U.S. Capitol, as well as the House and Senate office buildings in advance of January 6, 2021. Now, Barry Loudermilk is a representative from Georgia. He knows his way around the Capitol, you would think, right? Was he supposedly leading a group of, of insurrectionists through to kind of show them the way through the Capitol, showing them around the Capitol so that they were actually could make plans of how they were going to invade the next day? And are any of the people who are involved in this tour somehow named in this? Were any of them indicted for anything? It is a fact that not a single individual who is now languishing in jail, or any of those who have been named, the greater number named by the FBI or the DOJ, uh, not a single one of them who is present at this so-called insurrection, or even in the Capitol, has been charged with insurrection. Not a single one of them. Not a single one of them has been found to carry a weapon of any kind. You know? And yet they've got this whole thing going on at taxpayer expense. This is... Now, I mean, this is the, the Russia collusion hoax taken to the next level. That's all it is. The same charade, the same game, the same evil, evil uh, uh, program that the Democrats want to drag this country through. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't know what others would think, but I, don't, I just don't see how this can't be a criminal enterprise. I, don't, I, I mean, there are people who actually consider the Democratic Party to be a crime syndicate. And I mean, I think they have, they have a good case to make there, that it is nothing but an enormous crime syndicate, starting with abortion, you know, and uh, going right on through. It's just incredible to me that this, this can be going on right now. Um, this has led the uh, Republican, uh, Republicans lawmakers to say, all I can think of this, this is what the Republicans know. Uh, this is Republican Claudia Tenney, Republican of New York. Quote, all I can think of this is this is a Soviet-style propaganda trial, like a show trial. This is a uh, representative, Claudia Tenney, by the way, 
who spent time working in communist Yugoslavia earlier in her career. And she told Just the News, quote, they put this tape together using propaganda, selected words and clauses cut and pasted to smear the people they want to smear and to get the outcome. Okay, she knows, she's worked under the communists, she knows what it, they do. Uh, Representative Rodney Davis, the Illinois Republican, who pressed the Capitol Police to review the evidence to clear Loudermilk, said Democrats who besmirched his colleague's name need to face accountability before the House Ethics Committee. Dem Democrats need to be ashamed of themselves, Davis told Just the News. Who can, who can disagree with that? And Georgia Rep. Doug Collins, again, someone who, like um, a Barry Loudermilk, now a representative, he also, a uh, former representative, uh, Doug Collins was from Georgia and represented Georgia in the House uh, Congress, says, who played, oh, it says here, he played a role unraveling the Russia collusion narrative, said Democrats have reached the political limits of the proverbial boy cry wolf tale. And it is time for their enablers in the mainstream media to push back. Some of the biggest names in the media reported the Loudermilk allegations when they surfaced last month. And again, I mean, even the chief of police of the capital, Washington, D.C., says there is nothing to this. He says, we've reviewed whatever you have to give us, and there is no evidence for, for what you're alleging here. Uh, at what point is this slander, and at what point is there some kind of legal recourse to have against these people who have nothing but slander on their side? Remember, though, they're all in favor of abortion. They have this all in one, one thing in common. They're all pro-abortionists. And so, if, if, what can you say about them? There is nothing so immoral that they will not embrace to serve their own purposes, right? You'd have to say that about somebody who is actually a pro-abortionist as these Democrat lawmakers are. There is nothing that is so immoral that they cannot embrace it if they see it will be, it will serve their purpose. Um, so anyway, I mean, there, there's more to be said about this. There's more in this article, but again, uh, if people want to go to Zero Hedge and look for this, uh, uh, what is it, Capitol Police Chief debunks the J6 Committee conspiracy theory. It's uh, got a lot of information in it. So uh, in any case, Tom, I'm sorry for going off on that, but uh, we see that these are the same people who are allowing the violence to now not... Remember, remember, remember the Democrats who let the riots rage in the cities of the United States of America? And even that leftists cordoned off parts of the city for their control? Insurrectionists attacking federal buildings? That didn't count. Democrats, they excused that. They're now excusing the firebombing of pregnancy centers and the attacking of pregnancy centers. Uh, Abortion activists firebomb Oregon Pregnancy Center is, is now one of the, uh, one of the headlines now. Uh, 
And this just follows day after day after day of these attacks of this so-called uh, uh, you know, the uh, terrorists. That's what they are. I mean, you just have to call them abortionists, terrorists. Uh, this is what they do. This is the kind of people they are, sad to say. And uh, I just beg God to have mercy on them and convert them. God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. But it's going to take an awful lot of grace. Uh, because they've barricaded themselves into this uh, a very vicious mindset. And very, well, what is it? It's a hatred of God. Um in any case, uh, I'm turning the floor back over to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to, a lot to pray for. But um, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for being one of the uh, traditionalists that Francis so detests and decries. <laughs> I appreciate uh, yes, I, I'm, I guess I'm a restorationist. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. One Father. of the deplorables that Francis <laughs> would find uh, so un, unacceptable to him. But... Um, you know, as I mentioned, Tom, the, the devil knows how this turns out. This is his, it might be his last hurrah. So he's going to go for broke, you know. He's certainly got a lot of people who are willing to serve his, his uh, failing cause. But to pray for them. You know, as one of their, our questioners said, there are people who have taken part in the abortion uh, business. It's a dirty business, uh, the dirtiest business of all. And who repent of it and uh, come now to actually lead the charge against it, right? And this shows the, the power of God's grace and the power of persevering prayer. You know, we read about uh, pro-life people, uh, really pro-eternal life people, because they want you know people not just to be spared this life, they want them ultimately to save their souls. And they've suffered so much uh, persecution and prosecution from the abortionists and yet, they've done it with such um, charity and patience. I can't help but think that they're the ones who are gener generating the graces for the conversion of so many of those um, who may, may, maybe at one point were even violently threatening them. But somehow the grace of God prevailed. And uh, now, the pro-abortionist is uh, taking a very firm and powerful stand against abortion. So we have to see that uh, in, in with the church too. We have to see that there are there are conversions among uh, modernists. It takes an awful lot to convert a modernist, because um, even the very foundation of faith is lacking in them. Saint Pius the Tenth said, <clears throat> "They actually hate what we know as faith. They detest the idea of true faith." They reject the very concept of faith as traditionally taught by the Catholic Church. And yet the grace of God has the power to overcome them. And uh, what we need today is conversions like the conversion of Saul. And uh, we need new St. Paul's, right? Who will stand up at the Areopagus and boldly proclaim the faith to an, uh, a faithless world, you know? We need that. And there is only one way to get Saul transformed into Paul. We need people like Stephen who are willing to pay the price of the supreme love of God even unto martyrdom. So um, we can call upon that great deacon, you know, to inspire us uh, to seek the conversion 
of these uh, these poor people who are really on the wrong wrong road right now. Um, so you know, if these times call for heroic action, heroic faith, heroic hope, and heroic charity, well, so be it. That means that God will give the grace also. And the question is not whether God will give the grace, the question is who will accept it. Let's be among those who will. That's the key. Father, thank you for being here tonight. God bless you. Uh, Thank you very much. You too. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.